Good morning. <laughs> surprise, surprise from everybody's standpoint, but this is good. I like, I love to preach. I love to teach God's word and I love you folks. You've been on my support team since, well, I went to, went to France in 1983, so it's been a while. Uh, my grandmother was a, a member here. She died at age 104, so uh, I don't know if some of you guys might remember her. Uh, anyway, all right. Um, let me show you first thing, an illustration I use when I witness. This is a, an illustration that I learned that really helped me come to Christ. I was uh, brought up not by my grandmother, but my, my, my father's family um, religion, but by my mother's. And she was Catholic. And so I grew up down, down at Annunciation Church down the street here. And I always heard about Jesus, and I knew he died on the cross. I didn't know for who. I thought he died for Adam or something or other, but not for everybody else. Uh, I knew he resurrected. I knew he was God in the flesh. I knew we were supposed to be obedient to him. But the way of salvation was just a, a complete mystery to me. I, you know, if you don't know why Jesus died and for whom he died, it, it's just a big mystery, and I thought it was just uh, a question of staying out of mortal sins and stuff like that, you know. Um, I don't know if you know much about the Catholic religion, but it's, um, or at least traditional Catholic religion was if you're, uh, when you're baptized as a baby, then now you're in God's family, okay? So that's, you're saved when you're baptized as a baby. It's not the same as baptism in, in Protestant churches. Um, then you're on, but you're on probation. You're not saved forever. You're saved, but you're on probation. So if you commit a mortal sin, which is a big sin, then you have to go to the confession, uh, confessional and talk to the priest. And he will tell you to go say, uh, you know, several, uh, several prayers, uh, Hail Marys and, and Our Fathers and just can't, you know, the rote prayers that, um, that we learned. And uh, then you're okay. And then you can come back out of, and you're, conf and you're forgiven by the priest. Uh, when I went to college at State, uh, the guy in the fraternity, K fraternity house, became a believer, and he started doing this illustration. Now watch this. All right. He says, now this is man, and this is our sin. And he says, now some people have more sin than others, you know, and he'll put another wallet up there or something. But it doesn't matter because this is God, and God is righteous. And so this sin is our problem. This, is, this keeps us out of heaven. We cannot have fellowship. We cannot have a relationship with God. We're at enmity with God because of our sin. Now, you can do, every New Year's, you can turn over a new leaf, but it doesn't get rid of the sin. So you can take this sin and, uh, you know, you can put it in water in the baptism and it just comes out wet sin. You cannot get rid of the sin. The, the payment for sin is death. He would explain this over and over again. And you can either die and pay for your sin in hell forever or you can have a substitute. And that's what God did. He saw that man was in a, in, in a situation where there was no other solution than to send his son. Of course, he had planned this, you know. I mean, this was a simple explanation. But, of course, God planned this, that God would send his son into the world. He became a man in flesh at the incarnation so that he could die because God cannot die. But he's, in, he's an infinite He's the God-man who is not only man, but he's infinite God at the same time. So he can die for many, many people. 
He doesn't, I mean, if he was just one man, he could die for one other. If he was a perfect man, he could die for one other person, but not two. But because he's the God man, he was able to die. And when he was on the cross, God the Father took our sin and placed it on him. When Jesus uh, said around noon, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's when he received that sin. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says. And when he, about three hours later, he said, tetelestai in Greek, which is my favorite word in the whole, any language that you ever heard of. It's, it is finished. And that's the word that a man would use. He'd, um, say he'd want to buy a goat. And he'd go and he'd give the man that he's taken the goat from, and he'd, uh, he'd give him the money. And the man would write out a receipt, and he would write tetelestai on top of that. And then he'd give that to him. And that was his receipt. And that means that the goat had been paid for in full. Or it was also the word that they would use on a prisoner's paper. So you had a, a prisoner's um, debt. He said, okay, this guy, he did this and he did that. And he's got to pay two years for this and a year for that and two years for that. And then after the years were paid for in jail, they would write tetelestai on that piece of paper. That was his certificate of of. Uh, debt to the society and then when it was so it was it was the this paper was against him this was holding him in the jail but when he paid for it they'd write to Telestai on it and they'd give it to him said you're a free man you have been redeemed in full you've been paid your debt has been paid in full so somebody say oh you're a prisoner you're, you should be in jail nope and he'd pull out that thing and he says see to Telestai paid in full that's what Jesus said so when Jesus is on that cross, first he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's when God the Father and God the Spirit turned away from him, and he was forsaken of his Father. Now, I don't know if we can ever understand the depth of that. Here's God who lives in eternity, and yet in a certain amount of time, with an infinite number of time points in that time, he separated from his Father. Now, when we get to heaven, maybe we'll be able to understand a little more of the depth and the incredibleness of that when Christ became sin for us and he was separated from his father. But I just know it's a million times deeper and terrible than we could ever imagine. So here it is. And then he says three years later to Palestine. So where's our sins? They're paid for. So here I am. Do I have sins on me? They're not counted against me. If, you've, if you trust in Christ, then your sins are not counted against you. And when you trust in Christ, God takes his righteousness and you are declared righteous, legally declared righteous. And then there's a whole bunch of, uh, that's justification, which we learned in Sunday school this morning. And then there's implications and consequences of that that are magnificent. But I saw that and I said, now, wait a minute. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And I saw that substitute. So he started teaching this. My fraternity brother started teaching this in September. And by November, the Holy Spirit had opened my eyes, my blinded eyes and my sinful, rebellious heart to understand and accept that. And it was by God's pure grace of pulling me out of sin and rebellion and blindness and all the other things that apply to unbelievers. And I became a believer. So 
that was on a Thursday night. He, um, I understood it. A guy came, the guy came in with his Bible and he said, look, Marcus, you can know you have eternal life. And before I could say, well, you can't know until you die and get to heaven, get there. And then God lets you in. You can't know. Cause what if I did a bad sin right before I died or, you know, all this stuff. I had all these questions. No, he's gone. He'd give me his Bible, stick it in my stomach. <laughs> and I would take that Bible and I'd read it and he'd be gone. He had real good technique. So he, he did that. <laughs> he was really good. And I read that. 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And I believe the Bible. I mean, the Catholics teach you that the Bible is the Word of God. So I'm reading that and said, what? Wait a minute. If you can know that you have eternal life, it can't depend upon you. You don't know what you're going to do. Oh, that's that exchange thing. Oh, I get it. That's that exchange thing where, oh, I get it. Oh, I've got the, oh, man, I've got the righteousness of Christ. I've got eternal life. Oh, and I haven't doubted it one second since that night. The KA house at stake. Well, I was a KA. So the next night, that was Thursday, Friday night, I went out and got drunk like everybody, all other college kids did in my fraternity. And then Saturday morning, and I didn't, have a problem with that because it's not one of the Ten Commandments, is it? It's not. So it was okay. Except Saturday morning, I woke up and I had turned into a schizophrenic because now I had a new nature. And I didn't know anything about this new nature. And I didn't know anything about God disciplining his children and making them change and pulling them out of sin and sanctifying them. I didn't know anything about that, but I sure learned a lot that Saturday morning. I thought, now I've got this conflict in my heart where I had an old nature. Now I've got a new one. And it, just be, it was beating me up. And I went out in the field behind the K house. I'm saying, God, what's going on? I don't understand. I didn't, this isn't so bad. And man, I had all this stuff. And finally I said, okay, about after 30 minutes of arguing with him or trying to figure out what was going on, I said, all right, I'm not drinking anymore. <laughs> I'm not drinking. And that was the decision to make for a college student um, that was what was God had for me. Whew. Then I went home. I hitchhiked home from state. I didn't have, a, um, didn't have a car over there, so I hitchhiked home. We live on 3rd Street, so come up at Trotter Service Station, just go down the street. Somebody dropped me off there because you'd hitchhike home. Got the car for that evening. And I was going to go back and have a date over on campus. And then I'd bring the car back on Sunday afternoon. So uh, mom says, hey, Christmas is coming up. This is November. She, Christmas is coming up. What do you want for Christmas? A Bible. I'd never read the Bible before. I didn't know anything about the Bible. Here I am. I'm asking my mom to give me a Bible for Christmas. Where is that coming from? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. That new life is just gushing out, gushing out. You know, he's changing me from day to day to day. So I got that Bible at Christmas time and I read the thing. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts and Romans. Got down to Romans 12. This is about January the 8th. Romans 12. Because of the mercies of God. Present yourself, your, present your body to God for his service. And so I said, okay, I get it. You did all this for me by your grace. Now you're asking me to present myself to your service. So I got down on my knees and I said, God, wherever you want me to go, with whomever, with under any circumstances, I am your man. And I understood the implications of it. And I got up off of that 
and ended up growing even more. God got me out of the Catholic Church into a Bible teaching church in Starville. Um, I would also come over here and Jimmy Turner was teaching over here. I don't know if y'all remember Jimmy Turner, but man, he had a big impact on me as well. I was with Carlos Smith and Carl and Doug Daly and a bunch of the guys that came. Uh, he had a big, big, big ministry among the college guys, my fraternity guy, Jim Barnes. I don't know if you guys remember that. That's, that's for old folks. I'm 70, so I'm talking to, you know, very few of you understand that or even saw that. But y'all had a huge, huge college ministry back in the 70s, huge. And many, many men are out in ministry from, from, that, from that time. So anyway, so here's this, here's this principle of this substitute, okay? This swap from the sin and then the righteousness is given. And that was, you know, that was, that was foretold way in the, in the Garden of Eden. Did you know that? That was foretold way back. Remember Adam and Eve, they sin, and uh, what they first, they'd first do, they, they covered themselves with fig leaves. Well, they're trying to cover, you know, the effects of this sin. They're covering. They're, they're, it didn't take away the sin, but they're trying to, they're trying to find something that's going to cover this sin. They're, they're ashamed of it. They're ashamed of everything. And they're, they're trying, it's a covering. Well, God says, no. He comes into the garden. He said, where are you? Of course, Adam says, well, it's not my fault. It's my wife. It's the wife that you gave me. You know, he's not only blaming his wife, he's blame, blaming uh, God who gave him, you know, and she said, well, it's not my fault. It's, 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 it's the it's the, the serpent who deceived me. And so nobody wants to take responsibility of it. And yet God says, come here. And he takes an animal and he skins an animal, maybe two. And he provides skins for them to cover them. Now, I'm, over, I'm here this week uh, deer hunting with my brother. Um, we're over out Tabernacle Road. And a couple nights ago, uh, evenings ago, I shot a deer. Not night. I wasn't spotlighting. It was getting dark. But <laughs> and I got a deer. And so, um, but Joe now, he says, hey, now that I'm old, I take the deer and another man cuts it up and, you know, skins it and all that stuff. So that's real nice. But used to be you'd skin that deer. You'd hang him up and then you'd cut her in. You'd, you'd get all that skin. It is bloody and it's smelly, but you've got to skin the deer, all right? It's bloody and it's messy. And that's what God did. He probably said, come here. And he called a deer or probably a lamb. It's probably a lamb back then. A lamb over. And he skinned that lamb. And he probably put it, that bloody skin on their shoulders to cover their sin. Because the whole Old Testament, it's pictorial. It's like visual aids. And it's saying, all right, this is, this is what your sin. You say you don't even know what death is? All right, here's what death is. And he kills a lamb. And then he says, and your sin needs to be covered. And so he took that skin and he's covered them with that. And he probably at that time said, I want you to offer sacrifices of an innocent victim that will cover your sin until the Messiah comes. And you get a little hint of that in, in Genesis 3.15. So, but the idea of the innocent victim, the principle of an innocent victim that dies in the place of the guilty sinner to cover their sin was there from the very, very Garden of Eden. You keep, you keep moving on. Noah, when Noah comes along, what does he do? He comes off of the ark, and what does he offer? He offers a sacrifice, the same principle. Um, Cain and Abel. You got two sacrifices. You got a sacrifice. Uh, Cain was uh, a farmer 
and he offered um, he offered grain and fruit. You know, that'd be really nice. Like at Thanksgiving, you get that kind of decoration on your table. You know, it's like maybe some wheat and a pumpkin and maybe, you know, I don't know what else, different fruits and vegetables. And it looks real pretty and all that stuff. Well, that's what, that's what Cain says. Hey, you know, I don't want to offer this. I don't want to offer a blood sacrifice. That's kind of barbaric. I don't want to do that. I'll just, you know, offer what I've got here. And this is, God's got to, God's got to accept me for what I'm doing. You know, I get to decide how God, but God says, no, that's not the way you approach me. You approach me by the blood of an innocent victim who dies in your place as your substitute. That's the only way to come to me, by the blood of an innocent victim who dies in your place. And all of the, all of those sacrifices all through the Old Testament were simple pictures visual aids that were pointing to Jesus. You know, the Old Testament saints were looking forward to Jesus. They're saved by faith in Jesus who's coming. We are saved by faith in Jesus who came. Exact same principle of faith in the innocent victim who died in our place. The same principle, same person, just that we knew his name. We know his name. His name is Jesus. We know more about him. But it's the same principle. So you have... God accepting the, the sacrifice, not of Cain, but the sacrifice of the lamb that Abel offered. He offered it, and God says, that's the one. Cain says, oh, why don't you accept mine? God says, well, we're going to stop now. The way I want you to come is this way, and I'm going to give you a second chance. If you read the scripture, it says he's offered a second chance. If, you, if you'll change your mind and come the right way, then I'll accept you. But he says no. And then he gets mad and he kills his brother. I mean... You know, we shouldn't be surprised at religious wars these days because they, they started in the first generation, you know. So here we have Noah. He, he illustrates the principle of that. Then we have Isaac. Abraham hears God speak to him one day. says, hey, Abe, I want you to offer your only son, Isaac. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And God says, okay, I'll do it. He didn't, he got up. Got the, uh, got the, uh, the, the, the sticks, you know, the wood that he was going to use, and he got it on the, and then he and Isaac went off. But he hadn't told Isaac about, the, about, about it yet. And they get to Mount Moriah, and uh, God says, you know, right before he's going to kill his son, well, Abraham, Abraham said, oh, Isaac says, um, Hey, Dad, uh, where's this? I mean, I see the sticks and I see this and, and the altar, but where's, where's the sacrifice? And God says, well, God will provide the sacrifice. And, uh, he's, of course, you know the story. He stopped uh, Abraham from killing his son, and then he took uh, a, 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 book, um, a goat, I guess, or a ram, and he offered that instead. God had provided that. So, again, it's the same thing, an innocent substitution. This whole idea of a substitution. Jesus died in my place. That was my problem when I was Catholic. I didn't know anything about this idea of the substitution of him dying in my place. I should have died. Jesus lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. And I'm saved through faith in him who did that for me. So in um, Genesis 22, 13, it says that, that uh, the... the um, the ram died in the place of Isaac. Very clear. But again, that's a visual aid pointing to Christ. Now, 
Up until this point, we've got one lamb or one animal for one person, right? One lamb is killed to uh, cover Adam and Eve. There's one lamb that was killed by Abel. There was one um, lamb that was killed here by, uh, or ram, that, was, that died in the place of Isaac. But when you get to Noah, it might have been a little bit broader because you see several animals that are sacrificed. But we don't know a whole lot about that. But then we get down to Exodus. Okay, Exodus, of course, is when God had um, chosen Abraham. Out of Abraham and his sons, they had a, a nation. It was starting to get, they're trying to get um, touched or influenced by the paganism that was going on around them. So God says, all right, you guys, you got to get out of there. So he takes them and he sends them down to Egypt and, uh, where they were isolated in part of Egypt where they're all by themselves. They all were hairy. The, uh, the, the uh, Israelites, the, the Jewish people always wore, the men wore beards and they were hairy. And the Egyptians, have you seen pictures? I mean, they even shaved their head. I mean, bald is good, you know, if you're Egyptian, okay? So, <laughs> and they would, even, they would be clean shaven and the Egyptians wouldn't have anything to do with these dirty, dirty Jewish, you know, hairy gang. So they were isolated there, and for 430 years, and then they became slaves, and they were even more isolated. And um, so they were separated, and they, they, that way God protected them from the influence of the pagan religion around them. So at, at one point, after they became enslaved, God says, okay, it's time, it's time, it's time. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deliver you out of the hand of the Egyptians. And, of course, you know the story. There's the plagues, all these plagues, the ten plagues. And the tenth plague, of course, was the death of the firstborn. And the Jews would have had their firstborn killed as well because it was, it, you know, the plague was going to fall or that, that judgment was going to fall on all of them. But God said, listen, if you will offer a lamb, you will kill a lamb, you'll collect some of the blood, and you'll apply that around the door then when the angel that's going to come is going to come, and he will pass over your house, and he will not go in there and kill the firstborn. Okay, so the blood of an innocent lamb is going to save them from this judgment. That's pretty cool. Now, what God says, though, now, when do you get through, once the lamb has been slain and the blood is applied, you're safe. So what I want you to do is I want you to have a barbecue. I want you to you know, because, I mean, once you're, once you're delivered, you want to have a barbecue. I mean, it's a southern, they're southern. They're down in southern part of it. No. <laughs> but they, they do. They eat the barbecue. And God says, look, if that lamb is too much for just your family, we invite the next one. You know, invite your neighbors. And you all split it. You know, so you split the lamb. And so what the picture here is that once you had one lamb for one person or one animal or one one uh, ram. Now it's starting to open up. Maybe it opened up a little bit in the taste of Noah, but here we're seeing a lamb for a family or maybe two families or maybe even three families if it's a big lamb. And of course the lamb had to be observed for several days to make sure it was a good lamb. And there was a lot of symbolism in there. But the idea is this, this, this opening, this broadening of the application of the blood that this innocent victim is going to cover more than just one person's sin and their rebellion is going to cover more. It's going to save more people from judgment than just one family. So we, so that works. That works really well. The innocent dies in the place of the guilty. 
Then they get to the tabernacle. Years and years later, after their 40, after they pass their 40 years into the desert, in the desert and all that, they're asked to, or they're told to build a tabernacle, which is a nice big size tent. And then later on, that was the whole imagery was transferred uh, to the tabernacle, to the temple in Jerusalem. But the idea was that uh, this was where they met with God. And uh, they had a, uh, an open uh, had a big rectangular tent and it was split into two parts and the further part had a big t um, curtain and behind that was what's called the Ark of the Covenant which was a box about this big probably and, and uh, inside it were three things that talked about man's sin. First one was there was um, the tablets of the law and of course that's talking about man is a rebel against God's law. Second thing was a pot of manna of course, as you know, the manna was given to the, to, the, uh, to the Jews in the desert when they were there for 40 years. And it was free and it was, uh, it was great nourishment for them and, and so forth and so on. But they griped and complained about it all the time. And yet here they had it, but God complained. And then the third thing in there was uh, the rod of Moses was in there. And of course, that represented the rebellion against uh, God's authority because at one time, uh, there was a big rebellion against Moses. Oh, we don't want Moses to be our leader. We want Korah. So God says, all right, we'll put all your rods. Every, every tribe brought their leader and they put their, their staff, you know, they put it down in front of the, uh, the tabernacle and uh, God designated one and it flourished. In other words, their flowers came out. It, it, it was a dead piece of wood and then now it had, and it was almonds and even gave them almonds. And, and so that was the one that God designated as God's leader. Moses is your leader. This was Moses' rod. He is your leader. And then God judged Korah. Um, but those three things were inside the ark. And now on, on the top of the ark were two golden angels called cherubim. And they would, one of them would look down there and say, Ooh, la, la, man is bad. He is a real sinner. He sins against you, against your moral law. He, he gripes and complains about your provision. And he doesn't want to follow your authority that you've designated on this earth. And the other one says, yeah, man, God, uh, you know, uh, you better judge them. You, you have to judge. You, you're a just God. You have to judge these people. So, man, this is bad. They're, they're uh, designated as sinners and condemned. By the, the two cherubim, the cherubim were the guardians of the justice and the righteousness of God. And that was a serious thing. And that's the inside of the ark. But then comes the priest once a year on the day of atonement called the Yom Kippur. Hebrew Yom Kippur, day of atonement. It's not very well translated. It should be day of covering. Kippur is the word to cover. So it's the day of covering. Once a year, the high priest would come in. He would come into the inner part one time a year. He had a rope on his, hand, on his leg because if he ever messed up, they could pull him out before he just died in there. They could not go in there. There's a lot, of, a lot of symbolism here. But the main thing is that he would go in with the blood of an innocent animal and he would put that blood right there on top of the ark, right on the part where, and, and, and that would cover the sin that was represented underneath those three, those big law uh, against God's moral, uh, against God's moral authority, his, his provision and his uh, authority on earth covered. Not just for one person, for the whole nation. And it's covered for a whole year. 
Do you see how it's, how it's brought in that? Well, once we had a, little, a lamb killed for, to make a skin to cover Adam and Eve's sin, you know. And then we had one, uh, Abel offered one lamb for one person. And then we got it starting to broaden out. And then at the Passover, it was for a family or two or three. Now, wide open. Well, not wide. Let's go. Uh, kind of wide. The sin of the whole nation of Israel is covered for a whole year. You see? That's, do you see how the, the symbolism is growing? And, and, and that's called the development of, of revelation or progress of revelation. But the sin is covered by the blood of the innocent victim for a whole year. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. <laughs> and then we get to John the Baptist. And what does John the Baptist say? Now, we're after this, we're, gosh, we're... We're 1,500 years after Moses here, and they've been doing this for 1,500 years, offering this and covering the blood. What do you think that Ark of the Covenant looked like after 1,500 years of blood on it? The whole idea of our salvation is not a pretty thing. Oh, you think, oh, that's beautiful, beautiful gold uh, Golden, uh, you know, nice pretty wood with a gold top and two golden, beautiful golden statues covered with blood for 1,500 years. <laughs> I mean, really, this did not be a pretty thing. And yet they did it. And nobody could clean it. You couldn't touch it. Remember Uzzah? He touched it and he died. So... <laughs> The symbolism here, you just got to look and think through these, these ideas and these symbols, and, it, and it's, it's, it's amazing. And then John the Baptist, 1,500 years after the temple, ta tabernacle, the first tabernacle, the tabernacle was built, 1,500 years later. Of course, now they lost, well, actually, they lost the, the Ark of the Covenant probably around 700. So it's only, it was only six or 700, 800 years that they did that because they did lose that Ark. But they still had the tabernacle, and they still had, and then they had the, the uh, temple, but they didn't have the ark in there. So there's, there's some symbolism there, too, that's, that's important. But we won't go into all of this. But John the Baptist, he sees his cousin, Jesus, coming. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now listen to me carefully. Behold, no, he'd, he, first he said, Behold, a lamb, another lamb of God who covers the sin of some of the people. Is that what he said? Huh? Did he say that? He did say that, did he? Look at, let's look it up. Look up in your Bibles, John 129. I'm going to misquote it so that you'll get it. John 129. If I can even find it. There it is. All right, I'm going to misquote it, but y'all read it along and see, see what I say. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, a lamb of God who covers the sins of part of the world. <laughs> no. It says, The lamb. What lamb? The lamb, the lamb. That was promised in Genesis 3. The lamb that is the accomplishment of, the, of the, this, all of this thousands of years of prediction and symbolism, all of it. So he's the lamb of God. 
not a lamb, not another one, but he is the one, the one that all of those sacrifices pointed to. Behold, the lamb of God who doesn't cover, what does it say? It says he takes away the sins of the world. <laughs> you know, so it's universal. I mean, it's the death of Christ, of course, is sufficient for everyone, but it's effective for those who believe, as we, as we know. Um, it's not an automatic thing. God has to work in your heart and give you faith, and you trust in him, and he saves you. But um, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is, it keeps this illustration that starts in the Old Testament is opened up, opened up, opened up, and finally accomplished in Jesus Christ. So, use, use this little illustration. When you talk to people, talk to them about this whole idea of a substitute, of someone taking your place. And you say, you have sin, we have sin, we need a substitute, we need a Savior. That's the problem. People don't think that they have this. They might say, oh, I kind of have maybe, you know, a little bit of sin on there, but it's not that big a deal. But you need to show them, this is your problem. This is what keeps you out of heaven, keeps you out of this relationship with God. It's because you are not righteous. But if you trust in Christ, who is our substitute, who died in our place, an innocent substitute. You can't have just any substitute. You have to have an innocent one. And he died in our place, and he gives us righteousness when we trust in him. That's the being declared righteous. And then he gives us uh, a new life that will gush out of us and change us and sanctify us. And when we get to heaven, we'll be completely sanctified. So that's, um, that's the plan of God. It, came to, it started in the Garden of Eden. I uh, was uh, taught again with Abel and Cain and, and uh, the right and the wrong way to approach God. You can't come just the way you think. You have to come the way God thinks, the way God says. And it's through the death of an innocent victim who takes your place. And I uh, hope that just gives you an idea of how the whole Old Testament fits together and how it's just, it's marvelous. It's, it's just absolutely incredible what he's done for us. And, he's, and he had this plan from way, 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 way back. And it's marvelous. So share it. Share it with your friends. Share it with um, people you work with. And uh, see what God does. It's uh, He's a saving God. He's from the very, very beginning. He had a plan. He sent his innocent son who was not just one man to die for one person, but the God man who could die for us all. And uh, so it's a marvelous thing to share. Uh, it gives you confidence in um, as you witness that it's, that it's an effective it's, it's effective. He saves people. He changes them. And I'm, I'm evidence of that. And you are too. So give your testimony and share this wonderful news with our, our, our friends and neighbors. I have a, a man. This is how God works. I have a, I have a man that uh, lives down the street. And every time he'd walk his dog in front of my house and nobody else's, that dog would go crazy. And he would run up to me and jump on me and act like he's known me forever. What in the world's going on with this dog? But he did this every time. Well, what it was, was God wanted to save this guy. So finally he says, I don't know what's going on with this dog, but I need to, I need to find out what's, why my dog is doing this and only in this yard and only with this man. And so he, he started talking to me and I began to get to know him and I led him to Christ back in, I don't know, October or 
maybe um, first of October, and he's been going to church with me and growing as a Christian and uh, witnessing, trying to lead his, his wife to the Lord. Um, it's a simple thing. And I used the hand gesture, the little wallet, and, the, and, he, and he saw it he's, and, uh, and believed it. And he's 79. I mean, he was cramming for finals there. He, he, so, you know, so it's really neat to see. Uh, anyway, God saves people. And he's 79. Nah, you know, he didn't have a whole lot of time to, to fill around. And God just pulled him out of the fire and gave him that faith. And, and, and it's amazing. So anyway, uh, witness, get, get the gospel out to others. It's a huge privilege. It's a huge um, joy. Even if they don't become believers, you know what you've done. You know you've shared the, what you need to share. And um, it, it, it all fits together. And they say, well, I don't understand the Old Testament. You say, I don't understand all of it myself. But here's what I do understand. And, you know, you can explain things. I've got a Jewish man that um, we're supposed to ride. I'm a bicycle rider. And he's supposed to ride with me. And it's been postponed. And he says, but what I really want to do is I want you to explain to me everything that you said at the funeral. My wife died back in October. And he came to the funeral as a neighbor. And I explained the gospel real, real clearly. And uh, he says, look, I, re I really need you to, to um, explain this to me. And I have this sermon here that I gave you today. I have it with PowerPoint pictures, and it'll be perfect for him. He said, yeah, that's what I want you to, that's what I want you to show me. So if you want to pray for a guy named Joe, uh, Joe Marks, uh, that's his name. He's a friend of mine, a neighbor, and I'm, I'm wanting to share the gospel with him, and I'm hoping that God will open his ears and his eyes to see and to hear the truth of the gospel, this wonderful, wonderful message that God has given to us. We are his ambassadors. We are to call others to be reconciled to him, and um, it's a huge privilege. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to be with my brothers and sisters and help them to rejoice in the, the wonderful plan that you have to save sinners, and to bring them out of death into life, to bring them out of the kingdom of darkness and this kingdom of Satan into your kingdom where we're, we're blessed forever and we have assurance and hope and blessings and all the wonderful things you give us, Lord. Thank you for being our God and being the, sending your son to be the substitute for us. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that with everything good, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.